Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on 22nd of October 2012. Newcomers, as always, make sure that you make good use of the website CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com because there's lots of audios for free download. And if you can really persevere through all the dry stuff, you get a little grid of truth here and there, which really opens your mind, because that's where all the good stuff's buried amongst the dry stuff. You understand there's a big system running the world. It has been for a long time. They did come out 100 years ago and publish a lot of their documents or books and their big ideas through their various books and and. Uh, you'll find that uh, the world they were going to bring in was a world run best, you see, best by themselves, those who already ran the world's financial supplies, the big moneylenders for the whole planet. And they also said they'd get science on board and bring in a scientific uh, system to run the public and the minds of the public and the cultures of the public and change the cultures on the way to suit those at the top themselves. And it's all been done, actually. They used the same techniques as they did in the Soviet Union because these same boys financed the Soviet Union, these international bankers. That's no secret, that's no conspiracy. It's well documented in books. And uh, at the same time, too, they used all the experimentation that came out of the Soviet Union, all the Pavlovian training, these kind of things, on the public of the West. And again, the Rees Commission in the U.S. basically uh, affirmed that because they said that some of these big foundations, which are some of the fronts for these international banking boys, these foundations were funding all what appeared to be communist groups within the U.S. and other Western countries. So it's all validated. And, but they're not finished, you see, because they have to go ahead and bring in their whole new world order. You are in the, the century of transitions. And this is a century of change, the 21st century. They talked about that for a long time. It would take quite a few generations to change their cultures until they were flattened. No ones would stand up for national cultures anymore. And they'd even destroy all the bonds that held people together from family, all to community. All these things, it's all been bust, you see. And so we're helpless. And you have government agencies running um, and interfering in everybody's lives across parts of Europe, including Britain. So help yourself to all the audios, find out the score, how it's all working, and find out where it's supposed to go. And you will identify with it because you're living through it. You're seeing the things happen for those who care to know. Remember, too, you're the audience that bring me to you. I don't bring on guests as advertisers that scare the hell out of you and give you the solutions at the end. Uh, if you buy them, that is. I sell no products except the books and discs at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. And I don't get shares back from any any ads or anything else. I have nothing to do with advertising at all. So uh, it's up to you to keep me going. And you can do so by buying the books and discs. And you can find out how to do it at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And from the US to Canada, remember, personal checks are good, as are international postal money orders from the post office. You can send cash or you can use PayPal. And across the world, Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal. And straight donations are awfully, awfully welcome. It doesn't matter how little it is, because that's what gets me through, basically. We do live in, as I say, these 
times and ages of transition where everything's been turned upside down. All the old normals, remember, had to be flattened and destroyed to bring in the new. The way the world was supposed to be run by your betters. And basically that's how they said it a long time ago. And they did reiterate it through their big front men like Bertrand Russell and many others and the Huxley brothers. Uh, it's because they were involved in helping world think tanks find out ways to alter the cultures, destroy the cultures, as they say, all the things that made things as they were, to bring in the new. And what they used to say from the ancient times to the present is they were going to perfect all that that was left imperfect. An old, an old term they used to even use as far back as the Rosicrucians. Back with more after this. Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix. And it's true, you live in a, an incredible era of data, just data, pumped out every day for you to be overloaded with so that you can't think straight about anything. And whatever, whenever you get a modicum of truth or, or, gen, or a real genuine inquiry even, you'll find the counterintelligence boys hit it right away. And this is a big, big thing in today's world, counterintelligence at every level in fact. Last week I mentioned, for instance, about the birds all dying off since about 1998 across Britain, across Canada, and so on, to down 80-odd percent. Even further, I think it went to the 90s and even beyond. There's still not a bird up where I live in the forest. They're just pretty well all gone. And even the moles are coming at the ground because they're being killed by the, this rainfall with all the, the metals in it and aluminum oxides, barium, and various other things too. And it's killing them off. It's killing the trees off too. And so I mentioned it last week about the birds get dying and so on, and bingo, out comes the counterintelligence report from mainstream, of course, right after it. And it says, what on earth was this? Man photographs UFO floating in the clouds moments before 10 dead birds appear in a garden. This is mainstream mail online. A UFO-like object floating in the clouds was caught on camera on the same day 10 dead birds were found in a nearby garden. Well, that's why I have an inquiry. It was a UFO that killed them, right? Obviously, right? You can even see how they pasted this, this little circle into the clouds. And you can see the chemtrails in one part. But uh, So you'll see the square triangle around this little circle as they photoshopped it in. Very brushed job, obviously. But they had to, you had to kill something before people pick up on something. And you divert them off into the fantasy land. And that's called counterintelligence. So I'll put that up tonight again, just to let you have a good chuckle for those who understand that you're, you're all being had again by the big boys, because they can't get to talking, they can't get, especially all the environmental groups and so on, taking up, not that they, they would, because they only do what they're told to by their masters of the foundations, but they don't want folk taking this up and investigating further, because obviously it's taking animals down step by step, all, all kinds, until it gets you too, of course, it's getting you as well. But counterintelligence is a big, big thing. A big thing. I was going to do a show one night in another country. I was on a few of them and a few years back. And um, I waited and waited for that night for the phone call to come. An hour passed. And then the guy phoned me up, the two brothers. And one of them phoned me. He says, well, he says, can't bring you on. He says, I'm terribly sorry. And he was, I said, well, tell me what's going on. And he was all hesitant to see what happened. But he made a deal with someone else in the counterintelligence to make so many videos on the condition that, that I don't go back on that show. You have no idea. You have no idea 
of the tricks and cons that are going on out there. None at all. Now, last week too I mentioned about uh, the, the child actor, formal child, uh, child actors let down after opening up to the media. He says, I named names, but they've buried my story. That was, it was, came out in The Sun and other papers as well, the child actor in the BBC, and he mentioned different uh, abusers, etc. So it says here that, uh, this is what the public was not aware of, however, is that Murdoch-owned Times newspaper in London had also summoned Ben Fellows, this is the actor, to an interview regarding his story the following day on Thursday, October 18th. Since the original story I wrote, lawyers, people and other members of the media have been asking me to name names and actually accusing me of feeding the abusers and by not naming names in my initial story. So when the Times contacted me, it seemed like the ideal opportunity to name names. He continues, it's all rather easy to pin the entire scandal on deceased former celebrity like Jimmy Savile, but if you're going to name the names of current active entertainment professionals and politicians, you have to go with the biggest and strongest media outlet because you'd be sure to get sued. And the Times wrote me, you have nothing to worry about, we have the most powerful lawyers in the world, and that gave me the confidence to name names. Anyway, he named names to Murdoch's group, and then they squashed the story. A standard, you see. Now that they'll know uh, to warn the other papers, if he mentions these names, keep it quiet. That's how they do They've always done it, you understand. The whole system's run by these characters. Right up the way to the politicians, big time. And there's no doubt about it. They use or orphans and so on and fly them into these uh, sordid parties that they have in different places. That's come out before, even in the States, too. John DeCamp did an article on that. And a video, I think. But... um Here's another one too. There's an old series in Britain. And Americans don't realize it, but all the series that they watch in the US that they get used to, like Three's Company and um, even uh, uh, the Archie Bunker thing, it was all done in Britain first through the Tavistock Institute. Because through these comedies, they start to change your attitudes to things, uh, things that you may be held as convictions. You, you will see yourself reflected back as a bigot by the way that they portray it to you, and then you reflect upon yourself to alter your behavior. It's behavior modification. And so you had, you had quite a few different ones came out. And in Britain, also did one about the, the garbage man. And in and the U.S., they also changed that name to a different name. But um, this one here was about the garbage man in Britain, the first series. And the, the old guy in it, the old man, was actually a pedophile. And it's his step-toe and son stars, the latest BBC star accused of sex abuse, as two men claim he molested them in the early 1970s. And the actor Wilfred Bramble argued, uh, allegedly abused the boys in a theatre in Jersey. The TV star who played Albert Steptoe in the BBC show, uh, named following the scandal, engulfed in cooperation over abuse carried out by Jimmy Savile. And they're all in it together, you understand. And um, they all know each other, and they all cover up for each other. This is an actor uh, last night became the latest star accused of ch- child sex abuse. Two men claimed the, the later star and molested them while they were children in Jersey. And one of the boys lived the infamous haunt de Le Garenne children's home in Jersey. There's been a lot of scandals over the years with big stars getting flown into this home over there. Jersey is a very tight-knit community that they bring British police over there because the cops admitted that there's the ones in Jersey are so corrupt, they're on the paychecks of the big boys who live there. Anyway, it says here, this victim was taken to the Opera House, Jersey's main theatre, as a treat before meeting Bramble backstage where he was molested. There's been a lot of other boys came out too. They found bodies, by the way, in these orphanages in the cellar. There's investigations going on right now too. 
uh, children. And it says, um, in Jersey, everyone's, everyone covers each other's backs when it comes to the child abuse situation. The two boys came to me about Bramble because they did not trust the police. They came and told me and told me they were sexually abused by him. They're about 11, 12, or 13 years of age, different ones, and didn't know each other, so I'm sure they were telling the truth. They're all telling the same stories, but they didn't know each other, you see. But this guy, uh, this actor, already already had a police record. Uh, for He was arrested in 1962 for soliciting in a public toilet. Public toilets turn all these guys on, you know, smells and things. In Shepherd's Bush, London, and battled alcoholism in his later life. So... He definitely had a record in it too. Mind you, it had, it had a longer record if, if, of course, the big boys there weren't covering his grubby old you-know-what. So I'll put that tonight too. Jimmy Savile has come out now, even abused his own sister's grandchild, and then he paid off uh, the parents and so on. This is his great-niece reveals his scandal's more sickening, uh, sickening twist yet, and how he bribed his sister to cover it up. He even bought a house in, uh, over in Egypt because she liked Egyptology. Money talks, you know. It's, apart from that, folk are terrified because once, once you're up there and with, and big, you know, you're talking about organized crime at very high levels with important people, then you're scared to do anything about it. That's a problem. But it says here, Carolyn Robinson's girlhood was played by them, she says. She remembers the desperate images that came to her as she slept, herself as a child in her best checkered pinafore dress, sitting on her great-uncle's lap in the, the sour reek of stale cigar smoking his breath, and her grandmother's quiet collusion about her own omnipotent silent terror. She was younger, had flashbacks, then invaded her dreams. I relived everything that happened to me in slow motion. I wake up sweating. I saw the whole scene as if I was detached and looking down on it. And the worst thing is I couldn't make it stop. I'd shout, but the words wouldn't come out. And even now the cell smell of cigar smokes makes my flesh crawl. And she's 40 years old now. But he's been doing it right up until he died, for goodness sake. And it says, um, equally unsettling is her revelation that Savile brought the silence of close family members of the family circle by bribing them with lavish gifts and money. Her grandmother, Marjorie Marsden, uh, Savile's elder sister, knew he had abused Carolyn, but she believes Marjorie also was well aware of he had a, pro- a prolific and predatory paedophile history. But she refused to confront her famous brother because she knew that if Savile were brought to book, uh, the comfortable lifestyle he provided for her would end. It's amazing what parents all do for cash and greed to. Uncle Jimmy gave Marjorie everything in the world. She was interested in Egyptology, so he bought her a house on the Nile. When she divorced, he paid for the best lawyer. He paid for her to live in a smart BUPA care home near his flat in Rumtay Park in Leeds just before she died in 2006. And she had private medical insurance in a cottage in uh, Landuntno, uh, courtesy of Jimmy. He brought her, uh, he bought a caravan off the coast there. If Marjorie had blabbed, Jimmy would have done nothing, would have had nothing. No fame, no money. In fact, he'd have been in jail. And Marjorie would have had nothing too. So it should all for cash. And they pimped their children. Quite the family. But, uh, there's quite a few articles on it too. We actually, another article he said he confessed to a reporter that he would be seen as crooked after his death. He knew it would catch up once he was dead, you know. And it's true. They kept wait till they died before it all came out. And um, this article wasn't published at the time. It says it was given by Savile two months before he died. He admitted he was not a straight punter. The Jewish Chronicle obtained a, tr- a transcript of the interview, which was ostensibly about Savile's work with Jewish charities, but which included Jim Will Fix It, 
present prisoner's enigmatic reference to his murky past. He actually said he was more Jewish than Catholic in it. But uh, I'll put this article up too for those who want to see how bad it gets. And then, of course, the part, another one too, his, he was a tip of the iceberg. And of course he is, but they're going to clamp down. They cannot have, you understand, this going on up the way to the top, the BBC and government employees and all the rest of it, because uh, you're supposed to believe, you know, trust. It's a station that you trust, just like the CBNC Canada. We trust. We keep telling the ads on that. You ever notice how they always promote themselves? That's marketing, you see. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix. It's amazing too how everyone adapts to everything that's done with security and the groping at airports and all this. I mean, it's just standard stuff. Folk will always obey authority, and that's the history of mankind. They're trained to obey it, you see, and they're trained to believe that everything's above board at the top and it's all clean, good system that you live in. Every, every tyranny does that. But it says city buses in Baltimore will begin recording the conversations of bus drivers and passengers this week in a security move that's upset privacy advocates, etc., etc. It says the first 10 buses will be expanded to 340 by next summer, a result of a decision by the Maryland Transit Administration. They'll be getting cash from the feds to do it too, because if you're in a fascist system, you see, and uh, your tax money pays for it all for your own chains, for these uh, private corporations to get all their gadgets and gimmicks sold. Anyway, it says the MTA says the move is aimed at helping investigate crimes, accidents, and poor customer service. I mean, it's really so bad that customer service, they have to get mics in, right? And they're recorded by a locked black box. It can store up to 30 days of audio and video information. So it's a video and audio. The buses will also be marked with signs to alert passengers to the open mics. That makes it legal. Once you're told, you see, by consent, tacit consent, uh, then you, uh, anything that happens, it's your own fault. You're guilty right away for saying something or whatever that's particularly incorrect. You, you've had it, you see. Uh, uh, adaptation is always an awful good thing for big, big systems. This is a good article, too, to do with Italy, because you've seen all the money, (laughs) this roundabout of money in the EU, this super parliament that they have, demanding every country chip in uh, billions whenever they're told to, by the way. You're given seven, once you've signed the documents over, they've all signed them, all the so-called leaders of the countries. Once you sign the documents and agreements and treaties, then the IMF there and the central bank can just demand whatever whatever amount of money they want from any country, and then the country has to borrow it from the same banks, central banks and so on, uh, to give to the, the countries that are floundering. It's a wonderful scam by the bankers, and most folk can't figure it out. And the big thing is, too, they're amalgamating, they're using the excuse to amalgamate everything that Carl Quigley talked about in the 60s, said the IMF would come up to his proper position in the world, and under and if the central banks would all these private central banks that are all owned by the same people by the way would would be the big stick that would control the populations and create policy for the citizenry. That's what you've got running the whole show. Anyway, it says the EU is already embarrassed into releasing a press release that could procure 150 billion euros 
in Eurozone contributions to the IMF rescue now that the UK is out of the picture. And the December 9th Euro summer summit agreed upon a total of 200 billion euros, including non-Eurozone contributors, mostly the UK with 30.9 billion euros, has been adjusted. They call it adjustments. Now we find that the rabbit hole goes even deeper into Bazooka Circus because according to the just released update of the remaining meagre 150 billion euros in funding, Germany will be responsible for 41.5 billion, France 31.4 billion, and Italy will need to provide 23.5 billion euros, and Spain another 15 billion. To you know, bail out Italy and Spain. So in other words, Italy and Spain have to come up with this kind of money to bail themselves out. To bail themselves out. So they're borrowing money uh, to their own countries to bail themselves out. And it says the EU Finance Minister's statement on, on IMF resources, 19th September, December 2011. It gives you all the, all the, the rules that they formed so that they enable this to happen. What a circus. It is a circus, isn't it? And then you have the International Monetary Fund's epic plan to conjure away debt and dethrone bankers. You mean the smaller bankers, you see? Because everything's monopoly with the big boys. So there is a magic wand after all. A revolutionary paper by the International Monetary Fund claims that one could eliminate the net public debt of the US at a stroke and by implication do the same for Britain, Germany, Italy or Japan. This is one could slash it by 100% of GDP, boost growth, stabilize prices and dethrone bankers all at the same time. It could be done cleanly and painlessly by legislative command far more quickly than anybody imagined. The conjuring trick is to replace our system of private bank-created money, roughly 97% of the money supply, with state-created money. We return to the historical norm before Charles II placed control of the money supply in private hands with the English Free Coinage Act of 1666. Says that what it means is an assault on fractional reserve banking. You understand the big boys who run the world were the ones who promoted fractional reserve banking, where if you put $1 in, that same bank can lend $11 minimum out on it. Because only have to keep one, a tiny percent, on fractional reserve in the bank in case they crash. If lenders are forced to put up 100% reserve backing for deposits, they lose the exorbitant privilege of treating money out of thin air. The nation regains sovereign control over the money supply. There are no more bank runs and fewer boost bump, uh, bust uh, credit cycles. According to Ledger Domain, uh, it says we'll, we'll do the rest. That's at least is the argument. Uh, or Ledger Domain, it says. Some readers may already have seen the IMF study by Jeremiah Benes and Michael Kumhoff, which came out in August and has begun to acquire a cult following around the world. And it says, entitled The Chicago Plan Revisited, it revives the scheme first put forward by Professors Henry Simons and Irving Fisher in 1936 during the ferment of creative thinking in the late Depression. Fisher thought credit cycles led to an unhealthy concentration of wealth. He saw it with his own eyes in the early 1930s as creditors foreclosed on destitute farmers, seizing their land or buying it for a pittance at the bottom of the cycle. That's what's happening all across Germany, which helped it brought on the Second World War, actually. The farmers found a way of defending themselves in the end. They muscled together at $1 auctions, buying each other's property back for almost nothing. Any carpetbagger who tried to bid higher was beaten to a pulp. But they had testosterone back in them days, you see. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix, talking about the fractional reserve banking. And this article eventually gets to the point, and it says here, Bones and Kumpf argue that credit cycle trauma caused by private money's creation dates deep into history and lies at the root of debt jubilees in the ancient religions of Mesopotamia and the Middle East. It says, harvest cycles led to systemic defaults thousands of years ago with forfeiture of collateral and concentration of wealth in the hands of lenders. These guys have been at this for thousands of years, the same people, you know. These episodes were not just caused by weather, as long thought. They were amplified by the effects of credit. The Athenian leader Solon, and he was a predecessor, actually Plato was a descendant of him, Solon implemented the first known Chicago Plan New Deal in 599 BC to relieve farmers in hawk to oligarchs enjoying private coinage. He cancelled debts, restituted land seized by creditors, set floor prices for commodities, and unconsciously flooded the money supply with state-issued debt-free coinage. The Romans set a delegation to study Solon's reforms 150 years later and copied his ideas, setting up their own fiat money system under Lex Aeternia in 544 it says BC. Uh, sorry, 454 BC. It says it's, it's a myth innocently propagated by the great Adam Smith that money developed as a commodity-based or gold-linked means of exchange. Gold was always highly valued, but that's another story. Metal lovers often conflate the two issues. Anthropological studies show that social fiat currencies began with the dawn of time. The Spartans banned gold coins, replacing them with iron discs of little intrinsic value. And you understand there was about a hundred years war going on as the money boys, the Phoenicians that they call themselves at that time before they changed their name. But, and they also were called Canaanites because the area they came from. But they, they had a, they were financing other countries. They got into debt and using their armies to get, plunder other countries and forcing their coinage across the ancient world. That's what it's all about. They had an ancient coinage based on silver, and they were trying to get every country to use their system. If you didn't, they got war with you, started. So the early Romans used bronze tablets. It says their worth was entirely determined by law, a doctrine made explicit by Aristotle in his ethics like the dollar, the euro, or sterling today. Some argue that Rome began to lose its solidarity spirit when it allowed an oligarchy to develop a private silver-based coinage during the Punic Wars. Money slipped control uh, from the state. You could call it uh, Rome's shadow banking system. Evidence suggests it became a machine for elite wealth accumulation. Unchallenged sovereign or papal control over currencies persisted through the Middle Ages until England broke the mould in 1666. Benes and Kumhoff say this was the start of the boom-bust era. One might equally say that this opened the way to England's agricultural revolution in the early 18th century, the Industrial Revolution soon after, and the greatest economic and technological leap ever seen. But let us not quibble. The original authors of the Chicago Plan were responding to the Great Depression. They believed it was, a po- it was possible to prevent the social havoc caused by world swings from boom and bust, and to do so without crimping economic dynamism, it says. The side effects of the proposals would be switched from national debt to national surplus as if by magic. And it's true, when you really go through all the rubbish, they said, it would, would borrow to spend our way out of, of debt. I mean, that, that was the whole point of it. The bankers loved it because they were behind it. This is because under the Chicago plan, banks have to borrow reserves from the Treasury to fully back liabilities. The government acquires a very last assets vis-a-vis banks. Our analyst finds that the government is left with much, a much lower, in fact, negative net debt burden. The IMF paper says total liabilities of the U.S. financial system, including shadow banking, are about 200% of GDP. 
the new reserve rule would create a windfall that would be used for a potentially a very large buyback of private debt, perhaps 100% of GDP. While Washington would issue much more fiat money, this would not be redeemable. It would be an equity of the Commonwealth, not debt. The key of the Chicago plan was to separate the monetary and credit functions of the banking system. The quantity of money and the quality of credit would become completely independent of each other. Well, it doesn't work anyway. If you've got the same people running it all, it's always going to be the same folks. Because these guys are sharp up there. They've held on to being, had the monopoly power over money for thousands of years. Now, I touched last night on Homeland Security, or last week, on Homeland Security graduating the first core of Homeland Youth, they call it. And it's since October 7th, 2012, Vicksburg, the federal government calls them FEMA Corps, but they conjure up memories of the Hitler Youth, I'd say the Communist Youth as well, of 1930s Germany. Regardless of their name, the depth of the Department of Homeland Security has just graduated its first class of 231 Homeland Youth. The children are now aged between 18 and 24 and are recruited from the President's AmeriCorps volunteers. They represent the first wave of the Department of Homeland Security's Youth Corps, designed specifically to create a full-time paid standing army of female youths across the country. I'll put that up again today, too. I've mentioned before about GM, and, and it, you see, in a fascist system, they use your tax money, and they give it to the your big corporations. And the big CEOs, remember, go in and out of politics all the time. They, they go in to be a politician for a few years, then they're back into the same corporations they often left. And when they're in government, they, they're, they're basically they're, uh, they're like a, a, a paid lobbyist. You're paying their, their, their wages to run your country, but they're really a paid lobbyist. And they get big, big, uh, you know, you know, rewards when they leave politics for the good job that they've done. And this is how the GM bailout turned into foreign aid. And it goes into the, how it's really worked, how you're funding these big corporations. Meanwhile, they're just exploding with all the money you've given them, uh, building cars abroad and factories abroad, etc. So much, you see, for your country and your your aid to help your corporations. These corporations have never been yours. They can base them in any country. And they will for now on. They'll keep moving them on uh, when, to the cheapest countries they can get into to build the stuff. And also here is an article from Australia. Because, see, the big push from the United Nations was, oh, my God, there's going to be too many people. We'll need all that money that's going to be used on keeping them alive. We need all that money to help the poor in other countries and our paychecks, which are awfully fat at the top. And and governments are all in on people who are terminally ill or, or diagnosed to die within a year or two. Why not just kill them quicker? It's, it's, it's cheaper for the government. Everything's economics now, you see. Britain's doing it. Holland's doing it. Other countries have picked up on it. Euthanasia is a big thing. And as it were, one time you, you go to your doctor and you hoped he was going to try and help you. Now he's, he's just sizing up your, your, your value to society, basically. What's your status? What's your standing in society? Are you still needed? You know, what's your contribution to society? And then they kill you. So anyway, some leading doctors, this is not from the patients, these are from the doctors and ethicists. You know the bioethicists, the ones that are eugenicists? That's the new term for, for eugenicists. Are calling for uniform national laws to guarantee, to guarantee a dying person's wishes. It's double speak. They know you want to kill you. As expressed in a living will, are respected by doctors and hospitals. They say new medical technology is sometimes prolonging life unnecessarily. I Meaning it's costly, right? 
and this is Terry Jones, a presenter. Some leading doctors and ethics are calling for uniform national laws to guarantee a dying person's right to do a, to, to what they call a good death. A good death, you know, cheap. That's what they mean by government version of it. They say new medical technology is prolonging life unnecessarily, causing distress to dying people's families, even when the families want treatment withdrawn. They're also calling for reforms to ensure that living wills or so-called advanced care directives are respected by doctors and hospitals. This is across Australia and any one year, doctors and hospitals face more than 40,000 requests for treatment to be withdrawn. That's because they've advised the, the relatives to have it withdrawn, you understand? And now an issue regarding a pacemaker has revealed the complexity of the issue. Pacemakers like this one are implanted in your body but controlled externally by a doctor. They actually can do it from their office miles away. Who receives information via a radio signal hooked up to a computer. And it says that the pacemakers can be deactivated by a doctor in the office using a computer. But what happens to a person who needs this pacemaker for every heartbeat is dying from another ailment? What if that person is unconscious in the last 40 hours of life? Can that person's family be assured that it can be turned off in a timely fashion uh, so the distress ends? You understand how they'll tr- it's like a movie. This is how they alter your, your thinking in movies and things. You get into the, hooked into the emotional stuff. This is for their agenda, not for the patient's agenda. It's for economics, you understand. So don't get pulled into their plot, you see. So they give you examples that maybe may or not be real, and, and then they, they want the right to basically terminate patients at will. That's what they're after, terminate patients at will, and it's going to be cheaper for the government because they're saying it's too costly to treat people now. Even though these folk have paid taxes all their lives for all the different wars and the bank bailouts and everything else that runs the system, we just can't have enough money to, to help them in their time of need, you see. That's what, that's what it really is all about. And... This article here, too, is about, um, it's an IIS press release, it says, Strategic Survey 2012, the Annual Review of Global Affairs. I mentioned it last week, just touched on it, but I didn't read it. And this, this again, foundation came out with this, the Annual Review of World Affairs in September. And the guy says here uh, that... Um, there's a shifting land, landscape in global affairs. It was true in Europe, which struggled to find a path through economic and financial problems in Russia after the re-election of Vladimir Putin, and in China, where leadership transfer was also underway. The United States remained in transition between an interventionist era and a new role yet to take full shape. And he says he argued for the most for most governments, foreign policy has become a mixture of political risk management and trade promotion. See. That's what war is. When he's talking about foreign policy, he's talking about war. It's, it's a matter of political risk. You may get folk at home getting really ticked off if they don't have enough entertainment to distract them and say, out, you know. And trade promotion, because they, they go in and they plunder all the oil fields and everything else. And increasingly we're witnessing the privatization of foreign policy. Privatization of foreign policy. That's your war-making machines, everything. And all the agendas leading up to the wars that they're giving you, including all these soft power armies that they have, NGOs all run by the, it's already happened, it's already run by privatized companies and foundations. And it says, after the lunch, Alexander Nicole, editor of Strategic Survey, and a panel of IISS experts answers questions on Syrian, the Eurozone crisis, and efforts to stop Iran's nuclear program, which of course, 
they don't have an actual weapon. And uh, it doesn't matter how many times you say it, uh, that's on, they're on a list of the same list that came out in the 90s to take out under the New American Century Group. And uh, Obama prepares protracted Afghanistan occupation. I mean, they're telling the public one thing, and then he's telling his insiders the other, of, oh, yeah, we're getting the guys out and all that. With the U.S. president election a little more than two weeks ago, away, the Obama administration is quietly preparing to keep tens of thousands of troops in Afghanistan. The preparations, little noted in the corporate media, are unfolding even as Obama and his running mate, Vice President Biden, tell voters that the 11-year-old war is to end in 2014. There was one mention of Afghanistan in last week's debate with Obama declaring, I said we'd transition out of Afghanistan and start making sure that Afghans are responsible for their own security. That's what I'm doing, he says. In the vice presidential debate before the week, Biden was somewhat more categorical. He says we're leaving Afghanistan in 2014 period. There are, there's no if or buts about it. In reality, U.S. and NATO officials are furiously engaged in working out the fine print of a strategic partnership agreement signed in Kabul by Obama and Washington's puppet, President Hamid Karzai, on May the 1st. The, the agreement envisions tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers remaining in Afghanistan for a full decade, ten years after 2014. Nothing new there, though, because they said it would take 40 years that the troops would be over there at the beginning of it all. It was all in the, the major uh, papers at the time. So they're going to have at least uh, 25,000 U.S. soldiers and Marines uh, in Afghanistan uh, up until about 2024. And this is a report issued by German Intelligence, cited by Der Spiegel this week, predicted that a total of 35,000 troops would stay on, including a small contingent from other NATO countries. A large portion of the force would be composed of uh, Green Berets and other special operations troops who would continue carrying out counterinsurgency operations. That's when they go in and free fire zones and kill everything that moves. This is the hunting down and killing of leaders and members of armed groups opposed to foreign occupation and its corrupt Afghan stooges. So that's what it's all about, is foreign occupation for those who don't get why they're fighting back, you know. <laughs> and also... CIA chiefs face arrest over horrific evidence of bloody video game sorties by drone pilots. Mainstream, uh, nothing will happen, of course, because you take the whole system down, and that was the case. The Mail on Sunday told, uh, reveals uh, shocking new evidence of the full horrific impact of U.S. drone attacks in Pakistan. A damning dossier assembled from exhaustive research into strikes, targets set out in heartbreaking detail, the deaths of teachers, students, and Pakistani policemen. Also describes how bereaved families are forced to gather their loved ones, dismembered body parts in the aftermath of strikes. The dossier has been assembled by human rights lawyer Shahzad Akbar, who works for Pakistan's Foundation of Fundamental Rights and British human rights charity Reprieve. Filed in two separate court cases, it's set to trigger a formal murder investigation by police into the roles of two U.S. officials said to have ordered the strikes. They're Jonathan Banks, former head of the Central Intelligence Agency's Islamabad station, and John A. Rizzo, the CIA's former chief lawyer. Mr. Akbai and his staff have already gathered further testimony, which has yet to be filed. And it tells you how the, the attacks unfolded with these little goons sitting back in America. Uh, just playing little Xbox, he's killing folk. We have statements from our further 82 victims' families relating to more than 30 drone strikes, he said. It's their only hope of justice. 
In the first case, which has already been heard by a court in Islamabad, judgment is expected imminently if the judge grants Mr. Akbar's petition, an international arrest warrant will be issued via Interpol against the two Americans. The second case is being heard in the city of Peshawar. In it, Mr. Akbar and the families of drone victims who are civilians seeking a ruling that further airstrikes in Pakistan airspace should be viewed as acts of war. They argue that means the Pakistan Air Force should try to shoot down the drones and that the government should sever diplomatic relations with the U.S. and launch murder inquiries against those responsible. According to a report last month by academics at Stanford, New York universities, between 2,562 and 3,325 people have been killed since the strikes began in Pakistan in 2004. Of those, 881 were civilians, including 176 children. Only 41 people who had died had been confirmed as high-value terrorist targets. And by the way, they'll, they'll have to, they have, it's like when they break in your home and find nothing, they've got to plant something there uh, to, to validate themselves. And the police, uh, it's the same thing over there. They have to try and say, oh yeah, we got high-value terrorists. And that's all you get told about it for reasons of national security. Getting at the truth is difficult because the tribal regions along the frontier close to journalists, U.S. security officials. Continue to claim that almost all those killed are militants who use bases in Pakistan to launch attacks on Western forces across the border in Afghanistan. In his only acknowledgement that the U.S. has ever launched such attacks at all, President Barack Obama said in January, this is a targeted, focused effort at people who are on a list of active terrorists who are trying to go in and harm Americans. Who should be there in the first place? Mind you, they are guarding it for China, who's just opened up the first oil field in Afghanistan, and they're guarded by U.S. troops. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix. And also too, I'll put up this link to do with uh, China Begins Oil Extraction in Afghanistan. It's, uh, it says, it's, it's quite an interesting little story. It's kind of complicated in a sense because Canada's involved. It says, it's not surprising if not quite shocking move late on Friday. Canada blocked petroleum national uh, BHD's $5.2 billion takeover of Progress Energy Resources course, saying the bid by the Malaysian state-owned company wasn't in Canada's national interest. As Business Week explains, and what investors say is a test case for the $15.1 billion bid by uh, CNOOC Limited of China for Cal based Nixon Inc. The Canadian government said it was not satisfied the proposed investment is likely to be of net benefit to Canada. According to an October 19 statement from Industry Minister Christian Paradis, uh, while it's unclear precisely what would be of net benefit to Canada, what is certain that the progress energy move will crush investor spirits who in recent months have expected a flurry of foreign bids coming from local energy names only to be left at the altar courts of government intervention. And it says... Um, and while the outlook for foreign-driven M&A in Canada has just been iced to a degree not since seen since the BHP Billiton government denied acquisition of Potash Group, it says China is wasting no time and is rapidly reorientating itself away from the increasingly energy protectionist governments and to greenfield national interest expansion opportunities such as Afghanistan. Now, they're already in there uh, and they're being guarded by U.S. troops and Australian troops and other ones for the mines that they've got. They've got mines in there now, too, and the U.S. is paying for all the guarding of that and all the supply routes as the trucks go back and forth, taking out 
to the ore for copper and various things, but now they've got uh, an oil company in there too. As Reuters reports, in historic developments and a key staking of regional entry claims, a Chinese oil firm, China National Petroleum Corps, has just started oil production in the country, which still has thousands of U.S. troops on the ground. That's why they're staying in there for those who don't know why, or the the rubbish that they tell you why they're staying or not staying. They're staying to guard China's interests. We see we're international now, and so are the corporations. Lots of money goes back and forth at top levels of people that, you know, that work for, is it you? Is it? But that's how it works. And also, Agenda 21, United Nations, when conspiracy is not a theory, it says. It was out about the climate this year, the political climate, to do with uh, this guy's career, it says here. But it says, but Gaston County Commissioners have done something very good for which we should all be thanking them. They recently voted unanimously to adopt a resolution rejecting Agenda 21 and of the tenets therein. A United Nations doctrine that has been wrecking the sovereignty of the United States for years. The Republican National Committee this month finally decided Agenda 21 has become so damaging to the nation that they adopted a resolution to condemn the doctrine as part of their platform for the 2012 election. It's late in the day, but maybe now America will realize the seriousness of the internal threat Agenda 21 has become. It's referred to as a conspiracy theory in the newspaper, and there are many Americans who don't have an understanding of what Agenda 21 is or even why it even matters. It says that the Agenda 21 plan is readily accessible at the United Nations websites for all to read uh, 40 chapters of micromanagement for every square inch of the planet and your lives as well. This good reason Agenda 21 is not widely understood by Americans. Our government has deliberately been implementing it under other names for 20 years and obfuscating the true intent of the doctrine. Then it goes some of the, through some of the history of it and you can read this article for yourself. Now all these articles I'll put up at cuttingthroughthemedias.com right after this broadcast. Now from Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada, it's good night and may your God or your gods go with you. <laughs>